The Mountain Vista Baptist Church podcast features the preaching and teaching of Pastor Robert Perry and the guest speakers of Mountain Vista Baptist. The purpose of this podcast is to help believers grow, to edify the saints, and to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Isaiah chapter number 53 is where we'll begin. We'll read in the 54 as well as we go through this morning. But of course, a couple weeks ago, we started a brand new series here uh, in our Sunday morning services, and we just are calling it This Changes Everything. It's talking about the gospel. Now, uh, the gospel is uh, simply this. It's the, it's the, the, the story or the message of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Uh, Paul declares that, that uh, the gospel is his death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, when we think about the gospel, a lot of times, unfortunately, we think of it as a one-time message, a one-time event. Uh, That's a message that people who don't know Christ who've never heard about Jesus dying on the cross and giving his life for them. It's a message that they need to hear, but it's a, then maybe it's a no longer a message that everyone, every, every Christian needs to hear any longer. Uh, We think of it as a one-time event and the fact that when we hear that message and the Holy Spirit convicts us of our need of a savior, that uh, we of course call upon the name of the Lord for salvation and he saves us immediately. Praise God for that. But then we think that maybe somehow the gospel doesn't impact us any longer uh, after that point. But my friends, I'm here to tell you this morning that the message of the gospel has purpose and it has meaning uh, for the believer every day of our life. It will impact us every day of our life as well. And so I want you to join with me in reading in Isaiah chapter 53. We're going to start in verse number 4 and read down through verse number 11. Then we'll jump into chapter 54 and read some verses there as well. But notice verse number 4 of Isaiah 53. It says this, "'Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, He was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the living, uh, land of the living, uh, for the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he uh, had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief when thou, hast, uh, when thou shalt make uh, his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed, he shall pro- prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul. And shall be satisfied by his knowledge, shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Now jump into chapter 54 and pick up in verse number 1. It says, Sing, O barren, thou that dost, uh, didst not bear, bring, uh, break forth into singing, and cry aloud, thou that didst not travail with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife, saith the Lord. 
Enlarge the place of thy tent, and let them stretch forth the curtains of thine habitation. Spare not, lengthen thy cords, and strengthen thy stakes. For thou shalt break forth on the right hand and on the left, and thy seed shall inherit the Gentiles, and make the desolate uh, cities to be inhabited. Fear not, for thou shalt not be ashamed, neither be thou confounded, for thou shalt be, uh, be put to shame, shall not be put to shame, for thou shalt forget the shame of thy youth, and shalt not for remember the reproach of thy uh, widowhood any more. For thy maker is thine husband, the Lord of hosts is his name. Thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of, of the whole earth, shall be, he be called. Jump down to verse number 11 now. O thou afflicted, tossed with tempest and, and not comforted, behold, I will lay thy, thy stone with fair colors and lay thy foundations with sapphires. And I will make thy windows of, uh, of a gates and, and thy gates of uh, carbuncles and all thy borders of pleasant stones. Notice verse number 13, and all thy children shall be taught of the Lord, and great shall be the peace of thy children. In righteousness shalt thou be established, thou shalt be far from oppression, for thou shalt not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near thee. Our Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to be able to be in your house today. And our God, I ask now that you'd bless our time together in your word. Give me the words to speak as I deliver it. And Lord, I ask now that you be on glorified in everything that is said and done here this morning. We do ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, over the last couple of weeks, we've been discussing the gospel and, and the message of the gospel, its impact uh, on every human being, the fact of the unbeliever needs to hear it so that they might be able to trust Christ as their Savior and be saved, but also the impact it has on the believer from after the time of their salvation as well. But a couple of weeks ago, we, we considered the story of two brothers. It's a story in the Gospels that many a times we, can, we hear it called the story of the prodigal son. Uh, but it involves two brothers in that story, of course. And through that study of those two brothers, we realize that the gospel uh, it does not mean, uh, it, it does not equate to, if you may, moral conformity or, or behavioral modification. Uh, we, would, we would label that as religion. The gospel is not merely religion. It is not just a religious ritual or religious action. But then last week in Colossians chapter number 3, uh, Paul was speaking to the church of Colossae, and, and uh, again, we re-address re that fact that the gospel is not moral conformity or, or behavioral modification, but neither is it self-discovery. That means that it, the gospel is not secular, secularism. It is something totally different in and of itself. In fact, uh, Bill Tell, in his book, Lay It Down, Living in the Freedom of the Gospel, he writes this. Let me share it with you. He says, quote, A number of years ago, I was dis discipling a young man who had recently been released from the state's juvenile detention center. As a teenager, he had been hooked on drugs, and he had resorted to stealing to support his habit. His behavior had resulted in a new and unwanted identity. Standing before the judge, he heard something like this. You stole, that equates behavior, and so therefore you are a thief, his identity. He says not only was he declared guilty of law-breaking behavior, but he was also condemned as a thief. He goes on to write this, parents often follow the same pattern with their children. A young teen comes home from school with another disappointing grade. Perhaps they got a speeding ticket. He said, I've talked with countless students whose father's words still haunt them and define them today. You failed, 
behavior. You really blew it, behavior. You're a failure, identity. You're a disappointment, identity. He says they are given identities based on their behavior. But then he asks, he says this, you sin, therefore you are a sinner. But for those of us who are believers, is that a true statement? He says this, he says the behavioral part is certainly true. In fact, he says this, he says we still sin, we still sin a lot. And how many could testify to that end as well? We know that to be true. He goes on to write about the Apostle Paul, and, and he, 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 he references Romans chapter 7 and verse number 19, and he paraphrases Paul, and he says that Paul says something along these lines, I do not do the good that I want, but the evil that I do not want is what I keep doing. He goes on to talk about the Apostle John in 1 John 1, 8, where he says, if we have no sin, then we are just deceiving. If we say we have no sin, we're just deceiving ourselves. But what about the, the statement, you sin, therefore you are a sinner? Is that true about a follower of Jesus? He quotes Diedrich Bonhoeffer where he says this, What is worse than doing evil is being evil. Paul openly admitted that he did evil things still, but he rejoiced in the fact that God did not consider him an evil person. In fact, he references Romans 8 and verse number 1 where it says, There is now therefore no condemnation in those that are in Christ Jesus. See, for many, that's an absurd thought to, to think that in Christ Jesus that there's no condemnation even though we still sin. Even though, we, even though there's still this sin nature and even though they're still wrong and even though there's still evil present in our life, God doesn't condemn us in Christ Jesus any longer. And not only is that an absurd thought, but it's, an also, it's also an exhilarating part of the good news of the gospel, my friends. That's the difference that the gospel makes in a person's life. That's the difference that the gospel declares other than any religious aspect out there in this world today. This is why we are called saints. For example, Romans 1 and verse number 7 talks about that. Because our identity is not as sinners trying to become saints. But in Christ, our identity is saints based off of the work that Christ has already done, not anything that we try to accomplish. And so my friends, as we consider these, this, this portion of Scripture here in Isaiah chapter 53 and, and chapter 54... I'd like to look at the passage and to recognize that there are three results, three aspects of how the gospel flows in the believer's life daily and how it still affects us today. Now, my friends, if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ as your personal Savior, as I declared this morning, the message of the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He came to this earth, as John 3.16 tells us, because He loved us. And God gave His only begotten Son so that we might be able to have a relationship with Him and to be saved. The only way we're saved is accepting and recognizing that gospel message that Jesus died for you and I, that He was buried, yes, but He rose again to give us victory in our life and to give us a relationship with our God in heaven today. So my friends, there's that aspect of it. And if you don't know Christ, I implore you today to come to know him as your savior. But for those of us who are saved this morning, the gospel still affects us day in and day out. And there's three ways that it flows into our life. Now, let me be honest. 
I told the first uh, service in 845 that we were going to discuss three ways that the gospel flows into our life, and we only got through one. And so to keep everybody on the same page, we're only going to do the one today, and we're going to come back and, and, and address the rest of them next week, no doubt. So if you are a guest here this morning, you're only getting a preview of the whole message, so I hope that you'll come back next week as well to get the rest of it. But I want you to notice number one this morning with me. First and foremost, we see this, that the gospel structures our heart. The gospel structures our heart. And I want you to look back at chapter 54 and look at verses 1 through 5 again. Notice how it begins. It says, Sing, O barren, thou that didst not bear. Break forth in the singing and cry aloud, thou that didst not travail with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife, saith the Lord. Enlarge the place of thy tent, and let them stretch forth the curtains of thine habitation. Uh, spare not, lengthen thy cords, and strengthen thy stakes. For thou shalt break forth on the right hand and on the left, and thy seed shall inherit the Gentiles, and make desolate cities to be inhabited. Fear not, for thou shalt not be ashamed, neither be thou confounded, for thou shalt not be put to shame. For thou shalt forget the shame of thy youth, and shalt not remember the reproach of thy widowhood any more. Why? Verse number five. For thy maker is thine husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and thy redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth, shall he be called. Now this part of the book of Isaiah, as it opens up here in chapter 54, it's the Lord speaking. And he starts off in a startling way. And in fact, as you read it, you say, what in the world is being said here? Sing, O barren, sing, sing aloud, the one that has not travailed with child and all of that type of thing. Well, we, we find first and foremost, as we jump into chapter 54 and begin to consider how the gospel structures our heart, we find the image or we're introduced to the image of a barren woman. What do I mean by a barren woman? I mean, we're introduced to the, the story or uh, the information of a woman who is not able to, to have children. Now, you say, that's interesting and, and, uh, and all, but what does this have to do with me today? And, and what is God trying to accomplish in telling all of this? And what significance even does childbearing have, uh, especially maybe even in the ancient cultures of those days? Well, if you're asking those questions, let me put it in a nutshell like this. In those days, in the ancient days especially, the more children that you had, the better off your family was. The more children that you had, the more land you could produce and, and possess. The more children that you had, whatever type of business or, or work that you were able to accomplish, the, 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 the industry that you were in, the better off it was because guess what? The more children you had, the more labor you had. That's, that's just the bottom line. You, you say, Pastor, you're just being goofy. No, I'm being for real. Seriously, in those days, uh, families stayed in, their in family trade, and, and the more children you had, the better off your family would be. And therefore, the number of children uh, completely, it completely determined the fate of your family. It determined your status in society. It determined your security economically. It completely impacted your entire life. And so we were introduced first to this image of a barren woman. But also notice as we get into chapter 54, we begin to pick up on the imperative need of children as well. Because not only was the fact that the, uh, the more children you had that made better off for your family and for your career and the things that you owned and, and your possessions and your status in society and all of that, but consider this also. 
that as a person got older, if they wanted their adult children to be able to take care of them, they needed several children to make sure that they were taken care of. In, in those days, especially, it was like the roles reversed. Parents, they take care of their, their, their newborns and their young when they can't do anything, train them up to be able to be independent and to be able to accomplish on their own, all for the sake of being able to turn around and take care of them when they were bedridden and old and, uh, and stricken in age. And I see some of you looking at your children saying, I hope that you're there for me in that age as well. But that's how it was in those days. And let me go a step further. Listen to me. In those days, if you wanted two or three or four adult children to be able to take care of you when you were in your old age, that meant you would have had to have eight, nine, or ten children. Because there was a problem in those days that was rampant. And that was the fact that childhood death was a serious matter. A lot of times people wouldn't make it to even teen years or to adulthood. And so if you wanted a four, three or four adult children, you had to have much more to guarantee that that would come to pass. Now, we also have to realize that as we've seen this image of the barren woman, the imperative need of children, we begin to also see their, the children's importance to survival. Because guess what? This was not just a family ordeal. This was a nationwide ordeal as well. So if you had a nation or a crew of people that was only having one child, maybe two children at the most, or having none at all, and the other nation next door was having a bunch, a whole kit and caboodle, if you want to put it that way, guess what's going to happen as they start to grow older? When they look over at your land and see you don't have much population, they have a greater population, they say, hmm, I think I'd like that land also. And they rise up as an army and overtake that land. And so we begin to see why God is making this, this focus on this one that is barren because of this. In those days, if you didn't have children, you weren't pulling your weight in society. In those days, to not have children or to have very few meant that you weren't, you weren't producing all that you could to help your people and your community and your society to grow. In fact, think of it this way. Say the women, because in those days, a lot of times women would go to the well to draw water early in the morning. They would all go around the same time before it was too hot and, and all that. They would all gather together. Imagine as they're talking, because, you know, it takes time. You've got to put the bucket down into the well, draw it back up, and take turns and all that type of thing. And so they're just having conversation, like sitting around, talking around the water cooler, right, at work. This is what's happening at the well. And they're talking. And just suppose that one of the women say, you know what? I just don't think that I want to be a mother, or I, I don't want a lot of kids. Maybe one, that's all. You know what would happen? The other mothers would look at her and say, no, this isn't just about you. This is about all of us, because this is about our survival. And so therefore, for one to not want to have a bunch of children was a shame. But even further than that, if one did not have children, guess what? They were worthless in their society. That's how they were seen. Now, you say, man, that's kind of harsh. But you say, I, say, I tell you this, look at the story of Rachel in the Bible. Jacob marries Rachel and, and uh, she can't have any children. And the pressure on her was so hard, it was so much that in essence, she said these words, give me children. As she prayed to God, she said, give me children or I'll die. That's how harsh the pressure was to have children on women in that day. You say, that's just horrible. 
No wonder people don't like the Bible because God puts this precedent on people having children. No, my friends, listen, that has nothing to do with God. We have to remember that God's book, the Bible, not only gives us instruction, but it's also historical in nature. We got to learn to be able to differentiate between what's just historical facts and what's God-given instruction as well. But that was the culture of the day. That was the society of the day. And for a woman not to have children was a woe to her. It was a negative thing in society. The Bible tells us this, that cultures are fallen. The Bible tells us this, that society is fallen. It doesn't matter where you come from. Every single one of them are fallen. Why? Because every single one of the cultures and societies are made up of sinners, my friends. And we see this. And, and, and so therefore, every single culture, whether it was the ancient days who would put on the women to say you have to have children, or whether it be our culture today, each culture in our world puts an it on men and women in our world today. It puts a, a, a precedent on something. It says, it says, hey, you've got to have this or you're worthless. In our society today, it might be a career. If you don't have a certain status in your career, you're worthless. If you don't have X amount of dollars in your bank account, you're worthless. If you don't just have this many followers on Instagram, you're worthless. Let me just pause there for a minute. What in the world is a social media influencer anyways? How in the world did we get to the point in our world today where that becomes a job title? But you see where I'm coming from? If I don't look this way in my pictures, if I don't have this type of trip when I go on vacation, if I don't, I'm not able to accomplish this or that, then I don't meet the social status. I don't meet the acceptance of this world today. And listen, my friends, God is speaking to a, a, a group of people, women in particular here in their day, who the, the stamp of approval was on them only if they had a bunch of children. Now, that was, we could call that collectivist idols, if you may. Our society today don't necessarily have collective idols. We have more individualistic idols. We put it on ourselves and, and we look at others and it's not about what we can earn together. It's about what I can do individually. And it, it places an uh, importance on our assets like maybe our looks, our career, or our wealth. But well, I'm here to tell you this. Every culture, whether it be past, present, or if it be future even, every culture is simply saying this. If you don't have this or that, then you are nothing. And that's an unfortunate thing, my friends. And can I tell you even that Christians, people who know Christ as their Savior, can fall into the category of allowing themselves to be identified by this or that. We know that God saved us. We know that Christ died for us. And we know that we have a home awaiting for us in heaven one day. But because of our sin nature and because we still live in this world, we're prone. We have a propensity to turning back and saying, saying things like this. Well, I live here and this is what successful people do. This is what successful people look like. And therefore, I must do those things or I must have these things. We all have a propensity to taking and hitching our identity to something that isn't worthy of it. 
See, if you and I build our identity on anything other than God, and we fail to get that thing that we are trying to attach our identity to, guess what? It's going to be psychological and sociological death to us. It's going to be as if, oh man, I failed and there's nothing that I can do. There is no joy that I can have because I didn't accomplish this thing. I can't have happiness because I didn't accomplish this thing. And and every culture that has ever existed, whether it existed back in the day or exists today, is telling us to build our identity on something. And therefore, because of that, every culture, it's pressing and crushing us to the ground. Because culture is cooperating with the part of our heart that wants us to be our own Savior and Lord. It's it's cooperating with the part of our heart that cries out that says, hey, you matter most, and your will and your desires matter most. Every culture is crushing us into the ground in different ways, and my friends, it's almost impossible when everybody else is going along with it, when everybody else is seeing the same things, when everyone else is trying to go and accomplish the same things, it's almost impossible to fight against it. I mean, here we are, we're, we're Christians. We know that one day we're going to be in heaven. We know that we have a, 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 a place awaiting for us in heaven, that God's going to be there. But here we are, here and now in this earth, and man, I, I look at what society says, and I look what politics tell me, and I look what the news tells me, and I look what, the, what Hollywood tells me, and I look what the uh, recording artists tell me. I look what the athletes tell me. And and if I want happiness, if I want joy, if I want fulfillment, then I've got to have those things in my life. And the reason why we're drawn to it is because that's how everybody in the world feels as well. And it's hard for us to combat that. But my friends, I said it's almost impossible to combat it. Because I'm here to tell you this morning that God says there is a way out. There is a way that, to, that, that you can escape all the pulls. There is a way that you can escape all the dread. There is a way that you can escape the true slavery. That's what it is, is slavery to having to conform and to fit into somebody else's mold. There's a way that you can escape all of that. And what is it? What is it? Well, the Bible introduces us to a woman or to a group of women here in chapter 54. He says, seeing, O barren women... Thou did it, that didst not bear. Hold on a minute. I, I, we just got done tell, saying how that the barren women in the ancient days were looked down upon. They were worthless in their society. But God's telling them to sing. He says, hey, sing aloud. Look at, look at verse number one again. Sing and cry aloud, thou that didst not travail in ch- with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife, saith the Lord. Hold on a minute. This is getting confusing. Because childless women in those days were worthless in their society, but God says, hey, sing for joy, cry aloud, because you actually are, are better off, you have more to, 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 to experience, you have more to receive than those who had actually bore, bear children in their life. How in the world, what is, what is he even saying? It doesn't make much sense to us on the onset. But what he's saying is found in verse number five. He says, you can sing one that seems like you're worthless. You can sing one that has been outcast. You can cry aloud with great joy one who feels like you have no worth because, number five, verse number five, because your maker is thine husband. 
The Lord of hosts is thy name, and thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth, shall he be called. See, your maker is your husband. Last week in Colossians 3, we looked at a very, very long theological exposition of, uh, of how Paul declared the gospel. Here we find in Isaiah, he kind of sums up everything that Paul was saying with a beautiful image or metaphor here as he speaks about this, this uh, barren woman. We find that the Bible is clearly stating this. That every religion in our world, outside of Christianity, every religion in this world says that life is all about trying. Try, 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 try harder. And at the end of your life, as long as you tried and you tried and you tried and you fit yourself into this mold that society has said, if you fit yourself into this category that society has set for you, if you've done this thing that society has set for you, if you try all these things, then you'll have arrived in the end. Or religion says this, you know what, if you try, 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 try harder and, and set your mind on good things and right things that in the end you're going to get a good verdict, verdict when, when God looks at you and therefore you'll arrive, you'll be able to go to heaven or you'll have some nirvana or something along those lines, right? But it's all about try. It's all about what I can do. But the message of the gospel is completely different than that. The message of the gospel doesn't declare anything that we have to do, my friends. The message of the gospel has nothing to do about my work or my own righteousness. The message of the gospel has everything to do about Christ and what he has already done. See, Christianity is absolutely different than anything else that religion can give us. It, 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 see, it's being united with God through Christ. And the perfect metaphor for that, the perfect illustration for that is that of marriage. See, my friends, if... Two, uh, two people, uh, a man and a woman, are standing up here at the marriage altar to uh, say their vows and to get married. I'm here to tell you, while the man might have had to pursue the wife a little bit at the beginning, when they're here at the altar, they're both standing there freely. They desire to be there. You know what? Also, as they stand there, they're two individuals, man woman. As the minister conducts the wedding, though, they share their vows and they say the words, I do. He pronounces them man and wife. See, that's a lawful situation as well. Something that they didn't possess before that time, now they possess. And not because they tried harder to do it. Could you, could you picture it with me? Really, picture it with me. Could you see the husband, the, the man and woman standing there about to get married? The minister saying, would you have this man to, uh, to be your lawfully wedded husband? And the woman looks at him and says, I will if you run laps around the auditorium and you can do 100 pull-ups and 100 push-ups and 100 sit-ups and you have this much amount of money in the, in the bank and all. That's not how it works. She says, I do willingly and freely. He says, hey, will you have this woman to be your lawfully wedded wife? He says, I do, and he does so freely. And after the, the pronouncement of the man and wife, guess what? They are husband and wife. The Bible says that actually they're one flesh. You know what, my friends? Before that time, they didn't have that legal standing. But the moment they said, I do, they did. 
before you and I trust Christ as our Savior, we are sin, we're in our sinful state, we're without Him, we are desperate for Him. Unfortunately, a lot of people are like that illustration, trying to earn their way for God to say, I do. Can I tell you this morning, though, my friends? He's already said, I do. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Before the foundations of this world were ever formed, God already made a plan to redeem mankind back to him. He says, I love you in spite of you. You don't have to do anything to earn my love. When we come to him and we call upon the name of the Lord for salvation, we are saying, I do to him as well. And the moment we call upon him, we are saved. The mo- before that moment, we didn't have salvation. But the moment we ask for it, we have it. The problem with religion, religion says, hey, you keep trying, 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 and add into your plate. Hopefully, when you stand before God, you will have earned enough to give to him, and he will say, welcome. But salvation says, when I trust him and call upon his name, he immediately saves me. Amen. That's the difference of the message of the gospel, my friends. See, he's saying, what he's saying here is this. He is saying, don't look for any, to anything else for your value. Don't look to anything else for your worth. Don't look to anything else for what makes you who you are. I already have accepted you. And in fact, hey, what more could we want than for the God of all the universe, the creator of all things, to have already accepted us? Why would we want acceptance from anyone else? So while he uses this illustration of the barren woman to say, listen, your worth isn't found in whether or not you have children. Your worth is found in me. And I've already, tr- I've already accepted you. I love you supremely. And what you have to bring to the table or don't have to bring to the table doesn't change your worth in my eyes. And while he uses that illustration of the barren woman... We can say that to anyone here today. Your social status has no bearing on whether or not God loves you. Your race has no bearing on whether or not God loves you. Your talents have no bearing on whether or not God loves you. Your past mistakes or lack of mistakes even have no bearing on whether or not God loves you. He's already accepted you. That's why he looks. At, he, he says here in verse number five. He says, you, he, "He said in verse number one, you can you can sing, you can rejoice, you can cry aloud because your Maker is your husband. Not, you, 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 your, your social status isn't what makes you. Your Creator is the one who makes you. Your Savior is the one who gives you work. I don't know who I'm talking to here this morning, who might be sitting here and felt like you are worthless, you are lower than scum." But I'm here to tell you this morning that Jesus declares you accepted. I'm here to tell you this morning that he declares you as loved. And for every single person that knows Christ as their Savior, that's the difference the, me- the, the message of the gospel makes. That's how the gospel flows into your life daily. To tell you you are worth it. To tell you that you are loved. You are worth him dying on the cross and experiencing all the pain and all the agony and all the scourging that he went to. You were worth it to him. And that's all you need to know is that you're worth it to him. It doesn't matter what society says. You, hey, listen, you might have missed out on that promotion, and you might feel like your bosses don't think anything of you. That's okay. They can think what they want. God loves you anyway. 
You might feel like, man, I messed up and I've lost out on relationships and you might be sitting here broken and, 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 and just bruised from relationships. It doesn't matter what relationship troubles you've had. Jesus loves you still. That's the message of the gospel day in and day out for the believer. That's also the message of the gospel for those that don't know Christ as Savior also. The one who's sitting there thinking, Jesus, there's no reason for him to love me. I have no worth for him to love. My friends, he's already declared you as lovable. <laughs> you say, Pastor, you just don't know my past. You don't know what I've been through. You don't know the experiences I've had. You don't know the wrongs that I've done. I don't, but God already does. And he's already declared you as loved. That's the message of the gospel. That changes everything. Because religion says you've got to match up to a certain set of standards or you won't be loved. But Jesus said, I love you in spite of you. Culture will say, you've got to look like this or do that, or you're not accepted, or, or you, you don't fit into this category. Isn't it crazy how our culture has so many categories? Go back to high school, and you just got to get a glimpse of what culture is like. High school had the jocks and the cheerleaders and the popular crowd. You've got the nerds and the, and the ones that are always acing every test and all that. You've got the goth crowd and all that type of thing. And unless you look a certain way or act a certain way, you don't fit into certain crowds. And that's what society preaches to us daily. Unless you fit into this mold, you're not part of us and you're not worthy. Jesus breaks every mold. And he says, my, my death on the cross and resurrection from the grave proves your worth. Good. I'm here to tell you this morning, God loves you. If you don't know him as your personal savior, he wants to save you today. But if you're saved, if you know Christ, there's no reason to face every day with our head hung low, feeling as if we're worthless or, 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 or second-rate citizen, because we're accepted in our Savior's eyes. And he loves us. Can I invite you to stand to your feet with me, please, with our heads bowed and eyes closed before we dismiss this morning? Our Father, we thank you for this morning and the opportunity to be in your house today. I ask now that you'd just bless our time as we had this invitation, that you'd have your will in your way. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Now, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, out of respect of others this morning, I wonder how many here would just simply, by an uplifted hand, say, Pastor, I know I'm saved, and I know I have a home in heaven. I'd like to rejoice with you. Just slip your hand up and right back down as a testimony of knowing I'm, you're saved and have a home in heaven. Praise God for that. I praise the Lord to be in the presence of other believers today. I wonder, though, would there be anyone here that would just be honest enough? No one's looking around except for me, and I'm not uh, here to judge you or anything like that. I just want to simply pray for you. But you say, Pastor, I'm not sure that I'm saved. I'm not sure that heaven's my home. I'm not sure that Jesus Christ is my personal Savior. Could I just pray for you this morning? Would you slip your hand up and write back down? Anybody like that? Pastor, I'm not sure I'm saved. Please pray for me today, Pastor. One last question. How many here would say, Pastor, I know I'm saved, and I know I have a home in heaven. And whether it be daily, whether it be a regular thing, occasional thing, or, or kind of not often at all, but you'd say, Pastor, at times, I forget that the only thing that really matters is the fact that I'm accepted in God. I look at my workplace and feel like I've just hit a rut and I'm not going anywhere in it, and so therefore I'm just kind of a, I'm worthless, I'm a nobody. 
But I was reminded today that God loves me and that makes me somebody because I'm part of his family. I'm a child of the king. You might be here this morning, you say, Pastor, you know what? And I've tried and it seems like I take two steps forward and then five steps backwards. I try to, to, to do right. I try to live right. I try to do these things so that I, I look the part of a good Christian. My question today, though, is this. What does a good Christian look like, though? Who told you that's what a good Christian looks like? See, unfortunately, a lot of times we try to put ourselves into somebody else's mold that God never intended for us to be in. I'm just wondering if there's anyone here this morning to say, Pastor, pray with me that I'd remember that the gospel and the message of the gospel can help structure my heart to where it's oriented on the Lord and not on the expectations of this world. Can I pray with you this morning? Just slip your hand up and right back down. Hands all across the auditorium. I'm going to pray, and when I'm finished praying, the music's going to begin to play, the piano's going to play. And if you'd like to come forward and kneel here at the front, just as like an old-fashioned altar, I invite you to do so. But maybe right there in your seat, if you're unable to come forward and unable to kneel, maybe right there in your seat, you'd call it to the Lord. You'd give Him your heart this morning. You'd thank Him for your salvation. You'd, ha- you'd, you'd, you'd cry out to Him and say, Lord, while society might say I failed, I know I'm a winner in You. Our Father, we thank You for this day. We thank you for all that you do for us. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your love and for your acceptance. God, help us now this morning to remember that we are accepted in you as, as, as your children. That You've done the work for us and that we don't need to try to keep working to gain it. And Lord, we praise you and thank you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. As the piano begins to play, the altars are open. If you'd like to come forward here this morning, right here at Neil at the front, or maybe right there in your seat.